All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous. Really glad that you're here. We have a fun one today. I'm Bill Snell, one of your co-hosts, joined by Michael Girdley. Our other co-host, Bill D'Alessandro, isn't with us today. He's out gallivanting around with his wife. And uh, But we have a really fun guest today and a really sweet episode. We have Dmitry Maranovich. Did I, did I say it all right? Yeah, dude, it's perfect. All right, I took good. my college professors for years. Dimitri's here with us uh, as a subject matter expert. We're going to have a couple of fun deals to talk about on, in the vet space and uh, some of the consolidation that's going on there. And we don't, I guess we don't really talk about a ton of roll-ups. We, we talk about them from a distance, but we don't necessarily talk about them in depth. So Dimitri, really glad that you're here, man. We'd love for you to just give us kind of a, you know, a, a, a little snippet about you and uh, maybe 60 seconds worth of an intro. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, guys, for hosting me. I uh, love your podcast, so happy to be on. Uh, yeah, uh, my name is Dimitri. Uh, as Mel said, I have a background in finance. I did investment banking and uh, private equity. You know, lived in New York for, what, eight, nine years, then moved to Virginia to do this. I actually covered the vet space at my last job, and, you know, we invested in several larger roll-ups in the space. I like the industry. You know, it has both... You know, attractive economic characteristics and you know i love pets i love animals and uh, i ended up connecting with a friend friend of a friend who's a veterinarian and the two of us clicked on values and sort of where we wanted to take this and yeah so you know the two of us embarked on the journey of uh, you know building this together and uh, here we are that's awesome so you tell me what do you guys what do you own right now in terms of kind of number of practices or however you would quantify it. Where are you in that journey? Yeah, so we're we're relatively early on. We have two clinics that we partnered with. So our ammo is a bit unique in the sense that we partner with clinics. So in a typical scenario, we would, you know, buy a majority stake in a clinic with the doctor who's the owner committing to stay with us usually for four or five plus years in a true partner capacity in the sense that they benefit economically from the growth on the same terms as we do. And so the incentives are really aligned. And uh, yeah, we get a committed partner on the ground. So we've uh, closed two partnerships so far. Actually, both happened within the past months. So it's been, been quite busy. And then we're hoping to do maybe two or so by the end of the year. And then, you know, we're working on a handful of others as well. And so you're, you're buying a majority stake in these practices. So that means that like, if, if say somebody came along after you do this with 50 of them, um, you, you everybody else will get dragged. All the, the minority partners would get dragged along with you yeah. um, at a sale time. Okay. And, cool. and, and that's an expectation, right? The, the, the structure is not that unique. You know, mm-hmm. the, there are a number of roll-ups in the, in the bed industry and, you know, dental dermatology that have, a similar structure in the sense that they have, you know, equity sitting in the opco versus the prop, uh, sorry, uh, versus the holco. I think w- what's unique about our structure is the is the fairness of the economic incentives and how they are aligned, and uh, you know how the economic values split between us and the clinical partners. I think that's unique. The actual, you know, what's typically called the MSO BSO structure is not that unique per se but but yeah so generally you know there's an expectation that at some point there will be an event uh, in the future and the partners will benefit from that event and they'll you know essentially get to tag along with us to that event 
And we are not rebranding clinics. Uh, we're not changing their identity. And that's also one of the selling points is that we tell them, hey, we'll preserve your legacy. You know, a lot of the time those clinics have been founded by either sellers, you know, 20, 30 years ago, or their, you know, mothers, fathers, you know, long time ago, even before that. And so I think, you know, that's an important part of our pitch is that, you know, we'll preserve the legacy for them and we'll be a good partner for them. And uh, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we have a couple of fun deals to talk about, but before we get into those, uh, Michael, you have uh, one of our sponsors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in our, uh, our never ending quest to make this podcast break even, we have two sponsors today. So the, the first one is the guys at SM bash, uh, SM B bash, I guess I'm still not straight on how to pronounce it, but Mills, me and Bill, um, will actually be recording an episode live at this conference in Orlando in February. And then both, I think Bill and I are preparing talks. So evidently mine will be about hiring. So it should be pretty entertaining to say the least. And this is really, it's a, it's something special that's come out of Twitter. Uh, it's an intimate gathering of acquisition entrepreneurs and SMB entrepreneurs. So kind of what Moses Kagan's reconvene or what capital camp was for allocators or reconvene was for real estate. This is for SMB people. So being SMB people, um, we're excited to be part of it. And me, Bill, and Mills will be there. Uh, we'll be doing a, a book signing. Did you know that, Mills? It's on your head, right? Because we have to write a book first, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, uh, check out smbash.com. Uh, the guys are working hard to put on a good, intimate show. And um, thanks to them for sponsoring the episode today. Awesome, thanks. All right, Michael, you have our first deal as well. Yeah. Believe it or not, it is a veterinary clinic. <laughs> I, I have no idea why, but yeah, so this one is actually on a, a biz by cell Mills. I know you're proud of me. I pronounced it correctly. And that's because it's written on my screen, uh, but it's a nearly 50 year old veterinary hospital for sale in Oregon in a true broker fashion. Uh, Chuck Atkins, the broker from business connection did not put a photo up. So thanks to Chuck for not putting your typical um, stock photo on the listing. They're asking $900,000 for the business. Uh, the cash flow is two hundred and thirty thousand a year, so nine hundred thousand dollars asking price. Cash flow two hundred thirty grand. The gross revenue is nine hundred twenty five thousand, so they're selling for about one times revenue. There is two hundred fifty thousand in furniture, fixtures, and equipment (FF and E), uh, and it was established in nineteen seventy two and has zero dollars in rent. They go on to describe it as a well established veterinary clinic in an excellent location, nearly 50 years old, high demand area. It is the only veterinary hospital in its, in its regional location and is on the highway through town. It is a suburb of Portland, Oregon that is made up of two communities, according to the 2010 census, had a population of about 15,000, uh, and they are growing Columbia River Gorge, all that kind of stuff. Um, the reason for the sale is that it's because a larger veterinary business with multiplication is hiring away their veterinarians. <laughs> so it's kind of depressing. Um, but yeah, so they've had vets here and I guess they're, they're getting hired away for more money elsewhere. The owner is a veterinarian that also owns another location, in a neighboring community due to shortage of veterinarians nationwide. The owner is having a challenging time competing against the larger hospitals, finding replacement veterinarians when they are offering 30 to $50,000 signing bonuses. Since they are now in the situation, they don't feel like they can staff both locations. So they are now selling one of the two locations. Man, that is like the most depressing teaser <laughs> intro I've ever read. They feel like they are selling the best of the two locations and they are selling it, selling this one because the other one they own is in a community where I live. Um, the two locations support the owner and the four veterinarians that work between the two locations. 
two of the veterinarians are gone and one will be there through July and another through September. So it sounds like we're buying a business here that is uh, understaffed from the get-go and challenged that way. Uh, continually turning away business and the owner feels like this location could support a new owner vet and another veterinarian with annual sales in the million dollar range. They operate five day- days a week and the owner feels if it was open seven days a week, it'd support a third vet and be on track to go up 20 to 40% based on last year's sales. Let's see here. Uh, they didn't tell you how to value a veterinary hospital, which I guess is is basically uh, a key for maybe they're looking for somebody who is not a vet to buy this or somebody already in the roll-up space. The real estate is leased. It's a 1,300 square foot space, six employees. Uh, and that's what we know about this one. So what do we think about this nearly 50-year-old veterinary hospital for sale in Oregon? Yeah, so, so first of all, I'm sympathetic with the seller. Um, I think uh, it's a... You know, recruiting veterinarians is challenging in certain parts of the country, uh, especially in rural hospitals. Now, it's definitely not impossible. And uh, I feel really bad for him that he has to essentially, uh, seems like, shad one of the hospitals that he owns because he's challenged, you know, he's challenged to retain owners, uh, sorry, veterinarians. So, what we've seen, I mean, first of all, I think it's a, <laughs> I mean, it's a top deal, right? Like, I, I don't know much about Oregon. You know, there are certainly some uh, areas where getting zoned for a vet clinic is difficult. And so if that was one of those areas, there might be an angle whereby you buy into this business to get that essentially lease or that zoning, uh, and then you staff it and, you know, you have a successful business. I mean, here it sounds like you're basically buying a uh, a building with no vet staffing. Uh, So I assume there is uh, support staff in there. So maybe technicians, receptionists, uh, maybe practice manager and so forth, which is valuable. But I, I think what's the core of it, what's lacking is veterinarians, right? Because you can't produce uh, revenue beyond sort of uh, relatively minor amounts without veterinarians. And so I, I think that's challenging. Um, I think it's interesting that they're being so upfront about the fact that there is one or two larger consolidators uh, around there uh, trying to poach uh, or actually poaching their veterinarians so that they're struggling to retain them. Yeah, I mean... Dimitri, can I ask a couple of kind of maybe dumb questions? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry. <laughs> is, there, is there a difference between a veterinary hospital and a veterinary clinic? No. There's no the same thing. It's not like it's not like the hospitals improved in some way. No, no. I, I think historically there might have been some difference, but in today's world, you know, no, it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Is there is there any difference in your mind? I, I don't know a lot about vet clinics, but the one kind of delineation that I'm aware of is like small animal versus large animal. Is there is there one that is Better. I mean, I'm thinking about like the obvious differences, right? Of like, hey, this is my childhood pet and I want to spend a lot of money on it versus like, this is just, you know, another horse on my farm or something. But is there any delineation or is is one of them preferred uh, or or kind of better, better liked in in your analysis? Yeah. So most of the consolidation is actually happening in the small animal space. Small animal is a lot more attractive than large animal. Now, equine that you mentioned is actually its own beast of its own. Equine is very unique. It's a very tight community. It's almost like they don't let outsiders in. 
like they, you know, oftentimes they wouldn't even talk to you if you're not coming from the equine background. But usually large animals, you know, that large animal clinics, the business model is different, right? Because a lot of the time that's a that's a rural hospital and a lot of the time they deliver the service on the client's premises. So, you know, they have a vet who jumps in truck or a van or, you know, the vehicle and drives to a farm and then they may administer antibiotics or do like the what's the the cattle like pregnancy tests mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I'm not using right terminology, by the way, but it, it's very different from your typical, you know, small animal clinic, which is, you know, where people come to you as pets. Some, some, some clinics do mixed animals successfully where they would be in you know, 80% small animal, 20% large animal. Maybe that's sort of some of the that kind of side thing that they have going. There's also exotics uh, that is uh, uh, out there, you know, that's, you know, birds, uh, lizards, and things like that. Usually it's a small, you know, s- small portion of any clinic's business. And most, a lot of clinics don't do exotics at all. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to two things. First is economic characteristics. You know, the, you know, small animals, just better business. And then the two, recruiting staff, because it is a lot harder to find a veterinarian who's proficient in, you know, exotics, you know, lizards and birds versus find a veterinarian who's proficient in dogs. Mm-hmm. And so that also comes down to your recruiting and retention strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually one of the reasons why, you know, rural practices have struggled is because they're struggling to attract uh, younger vets who are interested in doing large animal work. And so this clinic, you know, obviously they don't tell us, but I would suspect that they're probably doing a good amount of large animal work. And that makes it more hard, you know, harder to attract veterinarians as well. Yeah. Is there no, you know, in human medicine, we've, we started to stratify primary care or what doctors do, right? You have nurse practitioners and then there's, uh, Mm -hmm. and then there's specialists on the other end, you know, is there equivalent of like nurse practitioners or nurses in the veterinary space? Or is it just like either you're a DVM, doctor of veterinary medicine, or you're not? And you know, are you able to solve some of this labor shortage through people whose training process is maybe quicker? Yeah, so that that's a pain point. So yes, there there is a similar certification, somewhat similar. It's called you know licensed veterinary technician, but it requires uh, on a comparative basis less schoolwork than RN registered nurse. And in the legal framework of most states, there is no framework for that individual to be able to. Uh, do as much as an RN is able to do as humans. So in some ways, vet med is, you know, tougher than human med- medicine because, you know, you don't have that paraprofessional to the same extent that is able to do all the same things that RN is able to do as humans. And that's one of the problems. And there are a few schools. There is, uh, I think, Purdue in Indiana is working, has a program that's targeting to create this, you know, sort of paraprofessional uh, mm-hmm. profession. Uh, within vet med, uh, but then it comes down to state certifications and where in which state they can actually practice what they are being taught. That's number one. And then, uh, yeah, and, and also, like, actually, funny enough, telemedicine in some ways is, is, is more regulated with animals than it is with humans in the sense that with, with animals, you know, obviously animals can tell you what's wrong with them, right? They can tell you, oh, my, my life hurts and this is how it hurts. And so most states 
of a framework whereby for your animal to be seen by the veterinarian, you know, there has to be a pre-existing relationship between the veterinarian and the animal. And so uh, that makes it harder to serve, you know, a lot of patients uh, via telemedicine, you know, unlike in human medicine where that becomes an option in many instances. Hmm. Well, and so these guys are struggling and trying to solve for four times cash flow almost, <laughs> but they, they say they have this like strategic problem where they can't keep staff. And it says here that the other, like, I guess, veterinary clinics of America, some of the larger hospital chains in the vet space are offering thirty to $50,000 signing bonuses to steal away these, the vets that are working for, for this guy. What, how much does a typical vet make? So I'm going to give you a uh, bad answer, but it depends. Uh, usually vets make about 20% of production or so, 18 to 22% of production that they make, which obviously differs, you know, very much across the country. And so, you know, it could be anywhere between $70,000 on the low end, uh, maybe like 65000 in some, you know, rural small communities. But that, that, that would be an outlier uh, up to, you know, hundred plus thousand dollars. Uh, now I think, you know, specialists and uh, people working emergency room 24-7 being on call or, you know, that's working like New York City and large metro areas make more. But yeah, I, I'd say, yeah, I, I think that that's probably the range. Those bonuses that they mentioned here are not, they seem rich. You know, it's not unheard of, but, you know, for a small town in Oregon, that, that feels like a lot. Now, obviously, we don't know the local dynamics and what those numbers actually imply, what they mean. So, so it's hard to actually gauge that, but that feels like a lot. Now, with your question about valuation and, you know, sort of four times cash flow, I mean, this cash flow figure is not real, right? Like, there's no... There's no veterinarian there. There's no cash flow, right? There is some cash flow because you, you could still run what's called tech appointments, meaning, you know, a, a technician could do like ear cleaning and some other things. But, you know, that's like a relatively small portion of your entire business. And so if there, is, if there are no veterinarians, there's no cash flow. So I think the only buyer who would... So two buyers could buy this. One is a veterinarian who is you know, wants to live in the community and would mm-hmm. buy this clinic and they would essentially become the production themselves. And then the other type of buyers maybe consolidate or maybe one of those larger ones in the area would buy the clinic as a sort of hub and spoke model, just have like a satellite location of some sort. But but with vet clinics, and that, that's actually not dissimilar from dental clinics and, you know, physical therapy offices and whatnot, Cash flow figures that brokers often show are not representative of the actual cash flow that you get as a owner because they're often not adjusted for veterinarians' compensation. So, you know, in this instance, right, if the clinic is doing nine hundred, you know, thousand dollars of production, you know, I I think it's probably doing hundred twenty-five or so, hundred fifty thousand dollars of EBITDA at best. If it's like a very well-run, I mean, really well-run, uh, well-operated clinic of this scale, it's probably doing ten to fifteen percent of the And so, when they show you a cash flow figure that's way in excess of that, that, that tells me that 
they're either not factoring in uh, doctor production or like doctor compensation, which is probably the case for rent because they show that the rent is zero, but they also say that the building is leased. I, I would assume they factored in rent, uh, I would guess, but yeah. uh, I would, I'm like 80% certain that they're not factoring, factoring in doctor's compensation. So there are, one of the businesses I dug into once was Veterinary Centers of America, v- VCA. I think you see their blue and uh-huh. red signs everywhere. The, um, so that's owned by, it's owned by something weird, like Mars Corporation or something, what? like the yeah, candy it, people. It is, yeah, um, it is owned by Mars. So why would, why would a big chain like that not be interested in a, a business like this? It seems like that that would be something they could potentially make work, right? Because they have a, a, a ability to recruit and transfer their people around and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, VCA is, I think VCA is probably doing some sort of you know, mapping, competitive analysis, and they think that they, you know, VCA is known for buying clinics and combining clinics. Right? Like they, they could buy a few smaller clinics and bring yeah. them all together into one building. and make them more efficient that way and so you know these days they're usually buying two to three doctor clinics you know they own a clinic nearby they probably don't have a need to buy this clinic they probably think they can just you know essentially poach clients if that makes sense With, with with independent clinics what really works is having a strong culture and and that sort of attracts veterinarians and staff because you know all those like very large consolidators like VCA and MBA and that or you know don't get me wrong they in some ways they offer great benefits some of them do and you know they actually have a structure in place and processes that you know some employees very much appreciate but there's a subset of employee uh, there's a subset of professionals in the veterinary space that are opposed to that model and so they would actually much rather prefer to work for an independent clinic. And that's actually, frankly, what we do at ADP is we, we position ourselves as being vet-founded, vet-led, not private equity back. Mm-hmm. And that helps us to, that, that's our culture. And so we partner with clinics that are like-minded, right? That they have this feeling of being an independent clinic. They have this very strong culture. And so if you have, do have a strong culture, then, you know, generally speaking, you're in a much better position to recruit someone if you don't have a strong culture. And I know, I know this is very touchy subjective. And, yeah, it's touchy <laughs> feel. It's very subjective, but yeah. but it's it's true, and it's it's very hard to gauge in the first visit or the first time you see the clinic. But sort of when you come in and you speak with the staff, that sort of becomes apparent. Yeah. Well, reading this reading this teaser for this veterinary clinic in Oregon. It just smells like a place that's not good to work. And you talked about the vets typically have an incentive, you know, an incentive plan where they're taking a percentage of their their income generated for the clinic. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me if these people haven't even gone there. Like they're just like, oh, like it's nineteen sixty five. We'll keep paying you a salary and no incentive plan, no nothing. Yeah, it, it, it's surprising. Yeah, you, you you're you could be right. It's it's surprising. So the clinic has been around for fifty years, right? And. Uh, that's great. I mean, usually that's a great sign, right? There is usually yeah. a legacy. And I mean, I have utmost respect for the owner. I mean, they, they I think, right? Like they, they, they've, they've done a great job keeping in this clinic, running it for 50 years. I'm wondering if that's not the culture aspect, if, ju- if it's just fatigue aspect, where the owner has two clinics and maybe they're 
approaching an age or already age, you know, at an age where they just don't, you know, they just don't have energy uh, to deal with all kinds of issues that come up and they, they just find it hard to compete. So it might not be a culture issue at all. They, they might have great culture and that might be a wonderful hospital. So the one was a like very family style and true independent hospitals, but they're just struggling because, you know, the owner is, you know, exhausted from, you know, trying to compete with others and also running two hospitals at the same yeah. time. But does it, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things when I'm looking at these businesses, I'm thinking about what am I buying, right? And yeah. and when you're going in and partnering with these vets, you're actually you're actually solving the biggest problem it appears that these guys have, which is who's going to do all the work. And, and, you know, it's tough, it's tough to see a lot of value in something like this. And if you're not already a vet or you don't have an ample supply of them. Right. So you're, you're right. You're right. If, if this business had been healthy, right. If they weren't like bleeding off physicians uh, or practitioners, what, I mean, are they right? Is the rule of thumb correct? Is it kind of one times revenue or maybe four ish times? Cash flow, even though that maybe doesn't reconcile with EBITDA, truly. Yeah. So the the four times cash flow. Well, we were just talking um, with Michael about this. Uh, the cash flow figure here must be significantly lower than that, right? Because yeah. typically a vet hospital this size would have a ten to fifteen percent EBITDA margin, and uh, you know, which would be ninety to one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars. Roughly, you know, here they're showing a much larger figure. My bet is that they're not factoring in uh, veterinarian compensation in that figure. So, you know, usually vets are compensated. You know, roughly speaking, eighteen to like twenty, twenty percent of production, and so that usually comes out of the obviously your EBITDA before you get to like actual EBITDA or or from your operating income before you get to, the, to your your EBITDA. I bet they're not doing it here. I bet they're viewing this as like a cash flow that's available to you if you're the veterinarian and you buy this clinic. So if I'm a vet and I buy this clinic, I'll be generating 230K of cash flow to me, but that includes my compensation as a clinician. Yeah, uh, like a seller's discretionary so, earnings. Um, one times, or one times uh, revenue sounds about right. Uh, I think it depends again on geography and uh, other factors, but that generally. Sounds right. You also have to look at the composition of revenue because, especially more rural clinics, they would sell a lot of product and not a lot of service. So service is a lot higher margin component of your revenue, right? And services, you know, any sort of exams, tests. Uh, it's actually yeah. could be characterized differently, but it's like surgeries and whatnot. And then products is basically, you know, anything that. Oftentimes you can get them chewy, and so products are lower margin. Uh, and again, it depends. Some products are higher margin, but general rule of thumb is that products uh, are lower quality of revenue. And so you would want to know what the split is before making that assumption. But generally speaking, like a one-time sales is a, is a good estimate. Yeah, but okay. but then again, if your margin, if if your sell, if your sales makes it such that your margins are less than you would think, then, you know, you'd probably go with like less than one times revenue. Or you could yeah. go more than one times revenue uh, if it's uh, if it's really high quality revenue. Sure. Well, let's move on. Let's move on Bills, to the you're second moving on to deal number two? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, you, you uh, got sponsor, sponsor, sponsor first? Yep. Yep. 
It's our longest running sponsor, tinyacquisitions.com. So it's a great website where you can go and buy and sell small money-making projects. So usually selling for 10K or less. So um, mostly online businesses. So if you're the typical, you know, kind of tech builder who's built something up with a little bit of with a little bit of revenue and you want to go sell that FBA business or online SaaS business that's tiny uh, to somebody else, um, you can do it all in one click. They handle escrow and all that stuff. So they have a bunch, have a bunch of projects here showing their website and you know the money will show up straight in, in Skype or Stripe if you're, if you're a seller. So pretty fun little business. Um, thanks to Jake and everybody on the team for supporting us and check out tinyacquisitions.com if you're interested in a good way to get up to speed on owning a side hustle business with a few clicks. So um, back over to you, Mills. Awesome. Thanks to Tiny Acquisitions. So our uh, our second veterinary practice deal for the day, Michael's going to pull up the uh, the website for it, but this is a uh, one that Dimitri sent over to us and that we kind of talking ahead of time found online. So this is in California. It's a veterinary practice for sale. The asking price is $795,000. says that they're a very successful, long-established practice located in Humboldt County. They're a small animal practice, 68% canine, 31% feline, and 1% exotic. So that kind of matches up with what Dimitri was saying earlier. Uh, it's a rural town of about 136,000 people. It's a great opportunity for the practice. Uh, to gross over uh, 1.45 million, so 1,450,000. The practice is open five days a week. It's a beautiful landmark building, just under 4,000 square feet, and it includes an on-site residence, which allows plenty of space on this 10-acre parcel. Interesting. So the business has been around since 1985. The building is also for sale uh, in conjunction. I'm not sure if it doesn't specify if it's included in this asking price or not. The demographic is rural. They yeah, have three nice. three operating kind of exam lanes. They kind of give some description about the design of the building, a reception area, nine large kennels, two large cages, 24 medium and 11 small cages, kind of three treatment exam rooms, uh, three surgery, three recovery rooms, three laboratory, three x-rays. They do medications, vaccinations, labs, surgery, professional services, and offer pet supplies. And then their 2020 gross revenue was, uh, you know, that 1450000 2019 gross was about $100,000 less, uh, kind of the low $1.3 million. Staff-wise, they have two full-time receptionists, two full-time assistants, and one full-time office manager, which uh, makes me think that it's probably just a one bet, but we'll get Dimitri to chime in on that. They, um, let's see, it looks like 900 patient visits a month and about 40 new patients a month. And there's some nice, nice pictures of the inside. Dimitri, take us, take us to school on this one. Yeah. So, um, I have questions, but my gut reaction is that this might actually be interesting. Now, I'll caveat that we, don't look, you know, we will look at clinics through the Midwest, East Coast, South. Uh, we don't go to the West Coast. We don't go to California. There's some regulatory uh, issues there that make it harder to operate, but that's sort of setting this aside. So clinics specifically, so, you know, they're saying they did one and a half million of revenue, gross revenue last year. This is actually a decent size. 
you know, I would think this is probably a two-vet clinic, uh, maybe one full-time, two part-time vets, could even be like two and a half vets, frankly, depending on how productive they are. And also depends on the pricing environment uh, in that area specifically. But this could actually be, uh, you know, pretty interesting on that standpoint. The staff here, frankly, is elite. I, I don't know if they've listed everyone. Uh, I do have a question because they don't list any. So I guess they list two assistants. There are no technicians. I would think that, so it would, it's quite challenging to produce one and a half million of revenue without uh, more support staff. So usually a good rule of thumb is you have two to three assistants slash, slash technicians per veterinarian. So there is two vets here, which is my assumption, you know, they probably need to add another, you know, two assistants or two technicians. And so my guess is that the clinic as currently staffed is actually understaffed. And so if you add more support staff, you could probably leverage more production out of veterinarians. And so there's potentially some upside there. Uh, also have some upside for more expansion because obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but every incremental dollar of veterinarian production has a higher margin than prior dollar uh, because of the fixed cost base of the clinic. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that it's listed as rural, like, doesn't concern me at all. I mean, it's a town with, you know, 130,000 people. It's not that rural, right? Like, it, in, in my playbook, rural is a town like 3,000 people. Like, this is actually, you know, like a decent size town, frankly. What else? Uh, yeah, I bet the building is not included. It's priced. I think it's interesting. You know, they're pricing it less than, you know, roughly, you know, uh, 0.6 times revenue. I bet there's something going on there. Maybe the, the owner is retiring. Maybe the owner is a full-time veterinarian and he's retiring. Uh, maybe, Mills, you're right. Maybe it's like a one and a half. I mean, I doubt it's a solo clinic. Maybe it's a one and a half clinic, and then the owner is just extremely productive. Like we've seen veterinarians yeah. doing over a million on their own, who are just like extremely hardworking and overworked. So maybe the owner is retiring, and so you know the production is going to go from one and a half million to half a million. I don't know. Maybe that's what's driving the price. Because if this was a clinic that has you know, truly one and a half million of production, like you would sell for more than $800,000. Yeah. Well, you've got the the one sign that I came back to is the clinic was established in 1985. So if you do the math, that's 37 years ago. Like, okay, yeah, like it is, it is precisely the time in which I'd expect somebody who's been working their butt off for the past 37 years to be tired, ready to just get out of it and move on to their next thing. Yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, a lot of like, you know, one of the clinics that we partnered with was actually founded by the current owner's uh, father, right? And so, mm. uh, so the clinic has been around for I can't, I'm uh, spacing it's like fifty or sixty years, but she's only been running it for you know twenty, roughly, uh, maybe slightly more years. Yeah, but yeah, y- you're right. I mean, that, that's right. I mean, a lot of the time, that's you know, that's a good good rule of thumb. You know, the yeah. So something like this, it sounds like the first place you'd kind of go is the same problem the the first deal had, which was how are you going to staff the clinic? And also, like, if the current owner is very productive, like, what does that mean for future production? 
and maybe this vet clinic is priced around what what the reality is when you get a mere mortal vet in there at some point as opposed to the superhuman one um, or pair of vets and doing closer to 800,000 as opposed to 1.4 million. I'm just curious about this scenario. We talk a lot I'm on the podcast about like buyer business fit. And obviously that's a really critical component here. You have a partner who is a vet and that kind of gives you guys, uh, you know, opens up the door to you. I'm, I'm also wondering though about transferability of ownership and, and how, you know, kind of client relationships can yeah. be. Obviously, if this is the only vet in this town, I'd be kind of surprised with that population. There's got to be multiple, but you know, when you step into this, a buyer like you, you're anticipating, right? You're at least going to have to hire a vet if you can't partner with existing management, which is kind of y'all's y'all's um, thesis and, and y'all's playbook. But if you just were buying this and you, you didn't have a vet who was going to stay and you're going to have to hire a vet to be there, I mean, one, it seems like you're going to have to really dial in their incentives and make sure that your interests are aligned because you're kind of putting all your eggs in that person's basket. But assuming you can do all that and, and your partnership is great with the with the vet who's going to be carrying all the all the revenue. I mean, how transferable are these, you know, relationships with with, you know, I guess not patients in this case, but clients? How sticky are those relationships through transition? I'll address your question but before I do that. I'll, I'll, I'll say something else. In many states in the U.S., Medical businesses like that, you know, whether it's a vet clinic or a physician's office or a dental office, are not allowed to be owned by mm-hmm. non-professionals. So yeah. I, I don't know the rules in California. We've never done a deal in California, but for example, in the state of Texas, you know, you're not allowed to own a vet clinic if you're not a veterinarian. Now there are, there are, there are structures around that. That's called you know VSO or MSO structure, and so there's a way. To, to structure a deal around that, which is fine. But, but that's when, when we start talking about transferability and buying this clinic as a non-veterinarian, I, I think it's very difficult, right? Unless you have a group behind you that has a recruiting arm and you have a you know, full-time recruiter, full-time recruiters able to you know, get on the road and start trying to hire a veterinarian, you know, you, you shouldn't, well, Many, in, in many states, you can't buy this business, and in most other states, you shouldn't. But then to address your actual question with, with regard to transferability, I mean, usually there's a, it's, just, it's almost like a, I don't know, not, not genetic, but there is a memory, right? Like people come to the place and they know that there's a vet clinic there. And okay, maybe now there's a different doctor, but if you preserve the culture and if you preserve the feel of that clinic and you treat your customers well, I mean, they'll keep coming back, right? Yeah. So that's like a, you know, that's part of our thesis that we want to be anti-corporate in some ways. Right? We don't want to change the name of the clinic. We don't, you know, we want to honor that legacy. We want to honor the, the doctor who founded the clinic and so forth. And then so, and I, I wouldn't worry about that too much, frankly, if, if you were a male, if you were a veterinarian and you wanted to buy this clinic and just, you know, start the business there. Like, I'm sure you'll be fine. Like, you know, sure there will be some attrition uh, because you know maybe someone really loved that one vet who was there. But you know, most people will come back, and if, if they feel like they're treated well, they'll come back. Yeah, yeah. Dimitri, in terms of your acquisition model, how um how are you guys 
funded? Are you just internally doing this and then doing more acquisitions from cash flow, or did you go out and raise money? Or and is that is that in you're going to go raise money, future money at some point? Or are you a fund? Or are you an, a, a hold co? What is what is the model in terms of how y'all are approaching stuff? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a hybrid fund slash whole club, but yeah, we we just raise outside capital from a, a small group of investors, you know, who in you know who have relative uh, relevant skill sets to what we do. You know, someone has a financial expertise, someone has roll up expertise. There's actually a few people who have roll up expertise, but but yeah, so we, we did raise outside capital. How, how, how much, just kind of order of magnitude, did it, did it take to start doing what y'all were doing? I will, uh, I'll, I will uh, ignore that question or <laughs> I will pass on that question. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look, I mean, it, it, it frankly depends if you want to do it right or not, right? If you want to do it right, you have to start building infrastructure. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to start, like day one, you have to start investing your accounting system, your ERP system. You have to hire people. And so that obviously takes resources. And so I've actually been approached by several searchers uh, who raise search funds who are trying to buy a vet clinic or a few vet clinics. And, uh, you know, they're struggling because it's because of the ownership rules and because of, you know, just complexity around the industry. It's very difficult to go and buy a clinic, right? Because you could buy like a clinic if it's like a large clinic, but usually, you know, large clinics go for very high multiples. And, uh, and so if you're trying to do like a roll up strategy, you do need to invest in infrastructure. Like, and that obviously takes resources. So like, for example, we, we hired a, uh, you know, we have now four people, including head of recruiting, head of HR, we call success center. And then we have a practice management officer and those, you know, it's uh, two guys. They're awesome. And, uh, you know, they are in some ways instrumental in us being able to do deals and persuade sellers to partner with us. And so obviously that takes resources and that's an upfront cause that you have to bear. Dig it. Okay. Well, and then on, on this deal, it sounds like the price sounds pretty good. There's things that you would want to know as to whether it fits for your model or whether it would fit for anybody's model. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, price seems attractive now. The question is, like, what's <laughs> what's in there? Like, what 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 are you buying? You know, uh, when you guys ask that question, like, yeah, I mean, what are you buying? If you're buying a, if you're buying into a clinic that has one or two doctors who are staying on board, and maybe when you partner with them, maybe you, you know, sign a partnership type deal, maybe. There is an associate, maybe the seller who's the owner retiring, but then there is a younger associate, maybe offer that associate some equity to stay there uh, and to become the new, you know, the medical director, the, the culture carrier, so to say on the ground. That's one way to do it. But, but yeah, you have, you have to know what's the run rate production at the clinic now and what's the run rate production that the clinic going to be after you close. Because obviously that, that, that's the most challenging, uh, you pointed really well michael that's the most challenging aspect of those businesses whether it's a vet clinic or a dental clinic is that the production aspect of it and having those veterinarians doctors in, in your clinic doing work and uh yeah and some you know hiring a veterinarian is not an easy fit I and mean, there there is a relative shortage and and it's 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 not not critical right and 
you know, vet schools are graduating to more and more uh, vets. And so, but but it's it's region specific. I would say that. So in some regions, it's very challenging to hire vets, and this could be one of those uh, or or not. Is it kind of like the doctor shortage where there's there's a significant doctor shortage in the major metropolitan areas, but then in rural areas or less desirable areas, there's an acute problem there. Is you know that's what I've heard about human medicine. Is it that way for doctor doctors of veterinary medicines, or is it or is it different? Yeah, I wouldn't call it you know in large metro areas or in. I, I would say places where most people would want to live. It's not that huge of a problem but it, it it becomes an acute problem in like truly rural areas like we're talking about towns with you know three thousand people population ten thousand yeah. population you know i think that that's a, that's a real problem uh, and and part of the problem is because you know realistically vet services are not priced where they should be right like the, the you know if you think about it you know, doing an orthopedic surgery on a dog is more complicated than doing an orthopedic surgery on a human, right? Because mm. for many reasons, it's it's just, the dog is smaller to begin with, right? But then the cost of doing dental, right? Like for this human, right? You could just, your dentist could do your dental work and you're fine. With dog, you have to sedate them. You have to do anesthesia. Like, it, you know, doing x-rays is more complicated because it's smaller. So it's, Point being is, but then the cost is or like the, the price that you get as a consumer is way different, right? Like an orthopedic surgery in the dock it depends where it could cost you like thousand bucks, but as a human, it's going to cost you like twenty thousand dollars. And so, and that trickles down to the fact that vets are, you know, paid less than they should be paid, and uh, yeah. you know. So you're saying we just need to go back to we need to replicate the human system with the pets? No, <laughs> and- <laughs> no I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I, I'm just saying that. Uh, oh no, I'm not either. It's, it's terrible. As a human, I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, that, and that's actually, by the way, that's an interesting uh, topic to chat about real quick. Like the 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 nature of accounts receivable in Batman is awesome, right? Like you would collect revenue. Usually same day or two days later, depending mm. on its credit cards, it's two days later, it's cash the same day the, the the service is rendered. And we pay our vendors anywhere between 30 and 60 days later. So there's a negative working capital uh, that obviously funds your operations and whatnot. In human medicine, you flip it, right? Yeah. Like in, in dental or whatever. Like we we actually in my in my job, like our firm invested in in a dental roll-up and dermatology roll-up as well. And and yeah, those are very different uh, cash flow profiles, but larger businesses, which makes it easier to consolidate too. That's that's on, that's on the offsetting side. That's good. That's this great. has been really really informative, Dimitri. It's fun to hear awesome. you talk about it. Any uh, any ways that our listeners can kind of support you and uh, and follow along with what you're doing, and any any way we can be helpful to you? Yeah, I and mean, then look, I I think. They should support their local vets, uh, support the profession. I think it's important. They could follow me on Twitter. I am at Dmitry, D-Z-M-I-T-R-Y 9. And uh, they could, yeah, if, if they know vet clinics or you know vet owners who are looking to partner with someone like us who's vet-founded, vet-led, and I'll be backed, send them my way. Or if they know vets who are you know, want to work for an organization like that, send them my way to you. 
Awesome. Well, really glad you joined us today. Yeah. Also, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, Eshin Bash and Tiny Acquisitions, on our supporting us on our quest to break even. We're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. Really appreciate this. It was great. Super fun. Thanks, Dimitri. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you.